Hello, and thank you for joining us for this Hoover Capital Conversation. I'm Condoleezza Rice. I'm the director of the Hoover Institution, and uh, I'm just so happy to have all of you join us for what we think will be a really wonderful opportunity to talk about uh, some of the hardest and most difficult, thorniest questions facing our country, where we really do need uh, all people of goodwill to think about uh, our road ahead. Uh, the Hoover Institution, uh, a part of Stanford University, is uh, indeed a, a policy think tank that is devoted to the best research about the questions facing our country and our world, uh, about the values that unite us uh, as Americans around our common creed, uh, a belief that it doesn't matter where you came from, it matters where you're going, uh, a belief uh, that the United States of America has an important role to play in the world as perhaps uh, the most successful ever uh, experiment in uh, self-governance. Uh, at Hoover, we are able to bring together uh, the best scholars uh, who have a desire to make their scholarship, their evidence-based scholarship available to policymakers uh, so that we might make better decisions uh, to secure the blessings of liberty and uh, to make certain that free peoples and indeed uh, their freedom to pursue their prosperity and their goals are assured. Uh, today, we have uh, two people who know that uh, well. Um, my colleague at Hoover, Kevin Hassett, uh, a former uh, a chair of the, of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors and uh, a Hoover fellow. And he's going to have a conversation with Senator Jack Reed of uh, Rhode Island. Uh, Senator Reed is also a graduate of the US Military Academy um, and served in our armed forces. Uh, we got to know each other, Senator, through the Aspen Strategy Group. It's a group that's devoted to bipartisan discussion of uh, the most important foreign policy issues before us. Uh, we wanted to um, ask uh, Senator Reed because he really is one of those people uh, who's just seeking solutions. And uh, we thank you for that and for your service, uh, Senator Reed. And so with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Kevin. Uh, Kevin, you're gonna conduct the conversation and I think you'll tell people also how to, uh, how to get involved and ask questions. So uh, over to you, Kevin. And again, thank you, Senator Reed. Thank, thank you, you for joining us. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Yeah, yeah. Th thank you, Condi, uh, for your service to the country and also your leadership at Hoover. And uh, thank you all for joining uh, Senator Reid and uh, me for, for a conversation about bipartisanship. Uh, and uh, Senator Reid and I, when we talked about uh, what we wanted to talk about before we opened up for questions, uh, we thought that we should actually start with three policy areas where there has been a history of bipartisanship, uh, policy areas where Senator Reid has actually led very successfully bipartisan efforts and then maybe uh, abstract a little bit before we open up for general conversation uh, to a general conversation about what we can do uh, to restore bipartisanship in Washington. Um, and, you know, Senator Reid has a lot of uh, important jobs right now. Um, he's uh, chairman of Armed Services. He's on appropriations. He's at banking, housing, and urban affairs. Uh, and uh, he's also... Uh, got a dark secret, which is he taught economics at West Point uh, before becoming a senator. 
And, and, and what that means is that when you're uh, the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, that he's a guy that you reach out to a lot when you're uh, trying to seek bipartisan solutions. And so I had the honor and pleasure of working with Senator Reid while I was in the White House. Uh, but you know, that some of that might have been visible to others. But what was invisible to others was how he was basically my uh, psychiatrist during the Senate confirmation process, <laughs> uh, because he's a very, very traditional, uh, honor, honorable senator that thinks that even if he disagrees on policy with the president, that his people ought to get confirmed. And, and thank you so much, uh, Senator, for your help with that. My pleasure, Kevin. But, but before we, we go to the first question, which is going to be about uh, your efforts in unemployment insurance to reform the system, I just wonder, you gave a very moving uh, speech today on the floor about uh, the passing of Senator Warner. And I wonder if you wanted to just share some thoughts about him uh, in his memory before we get going. Well, first, thank you for inviting me here. This is a, a great privilege. And I want to also thank uh, Secretary Rice. Uh, Conde has been an extraordinary public servant, and she continues to do that, uh, indeed, inspirationally, not just uh, practically. So thank you both. John Warner was one of the most delightful uh, personalities and great leaders I know. A young man, he joined the United States Navy at 18 at the end of the war, didn't deploy overseas. But then again, in the Korean War, he joined the Marine Corps, uh, retired as a captain. Uh, then he went on to his, his legal career, et cetera. In the Senate, he was the epitome of, of bipartisanship, of uh, a gentleman, uh, a principled advocate uh, for his state and also for the military services. He was one of my predecessors is chairman of the Armed Services Committee, but he also had this gleam in his eyes, and you see, slightly mischievous, mischievous if that uh, could be applied to him. And I recall, and I said today on the floor, uh, he led the first CODEL into Iraq in 2003. It was bipartisan, uh, bipartisan, of course, but on the way back, we had to rest overnight, rest the crew. And being a former secretary of the Navy, he knew the best place to uh, rest in uh, the Mediterranean is Suda Bay on Crete. And he entertained us that evening at a beautiful restaurant overlooking the, the sea and the food, the music, et cetera. But that's the, the type of gentleman he was. It was uh, principled bipartisanship. Um, my final point I'll make is that I think what drove him in many respects, is having served as an enlisted person, having served in two of our branches of service, he understood that uh, a lot of what we do is about protecting the young men and women who protect us, and he never lost sight of that. Yeah, well, thank you very much for that, and, and I think it's uh, very fitting to be talking today about ways that we can restore that mood uh, right. in Washington. And, and to start uh, with that, you know, uh, you've been a leader uh, in many policy areas in the Senate, but one of the places where you and I fir first met was when you became very active in thinking about how we can make the unemployment insurance system uh, better. And I know that you have a new bill that's going to build on some of these efforts. And so I want to ask you to talk about the bill, but but maybe uh, to, to tee it up even before, you know, talk about your efforts last year to expand unemployment insurance benefits because of the emergency and, and how your effort might actually, you know, function as a transition to a- to Well, first let me go back because you're a key part of this. Uh, I was, became aware of what was known as WorkShare. Rhode Island was one of a handful of states that had the program, which basically allowed an employer to elect 
a person work three days a week and the other two days would be covered by unemployment compensation, which was a win for the employer and the employee, and also a win for the state and the federal government in terms of payments. It just, and during the crisis of 2009 and 10, it was critical to so many companies to keep their workforce in place and keep the coherence. So when we had the pandemic strike, oh, I must stop before that. So I thought this would be a great idea to have at the federal level, but I didn't have the intelligence and the economic acumen to sell it until I ran into a young Kevin Hassett at the American Enterprise Institute who actually said, yeah, no, this is really uh, a thoughtful a way to do it. It's uh, great and et cetera. So we were able to unite both uh, sides of the aisle, if you will uh, let me. Uh, and uh, it was, a, we got it into the legislation allowing states to expand. Now there are now 27 states that are in the process of doing that. And what we did last year in the CARES Act is we, it was no longer a shared expense by the state and federal government. We made it uh, fully uh, compensated by the federal government, uh, which again was uh, helped the states, which needed the help. And we want to use that model going forward to create a program in every state in which, uh, because of various reasons, uh, employers and employees can benefit from some time off because of either a layoff or the basic reason would be a layoff. And we're working on that, and we hope we can get that into the, the legislation that's being proposed these days. Yeah, you know, I, I, I forecast that, that if there is bipartisan legislation in this space this year, you know, we've got, I think the count is up to 24 states where Republicans are the governors, so they've turned down the expanded UI benefits, you know, probably pretty harmful to people who are still unemployed in those states. But that yeah. moving from where we are now with the big expansion of benefits to, you know, a new equilibrium that doesn't discourage employment, you know, work sharing is the natural solution to that. And so no, it, I predict that you're gonna you're gonna be leading a big bipartisan equity. No, but I think again you're right. And and because of your economic insights and because of the practical appeal to both the state officials and to uh, businesses, it's like, hey, this makes sense. I I want this individual, man or woman, to be with me. I don't want to lose them. They're too valuable, but I can't keep them all five days. Well, guess what? You can now, and you can continue through the downturn. And, um, and in this environment, too, looking ahead, as technology becomes more pervasive and uh, taking up work time, you know, the formal work might not be five days or 40 hours a week. It could be less than that, but still people need to uh, have the resources to, to take care of their family. So they're looking ahead. That might be one other application. You know, uh, as you know, now chairman of armed services, one of the things for, for those who aren't like real Washington insiders that people might not know is that's probably the most bipartisan committee there is. And if you wonder, I think, why the military works so well, it's probably, other than the Council of Economic Advisors, the part of the U.S. government that works the best, right? Uh, it, it, and I think it's because you and Senator McCain and other people have worked so well together over the years. And uh, you've got a, a, a lot on your plate, but, but I just want people to know that the, the future of the military, what we do for the 21st century, that that's the committee where they actually come up with that kind of strategy. That, that, it that, is, and it's... 
it's very bipartisan. And that's a tradition that goes back to John Warner and to uh, Sam Nunn, to Carl Levin, John McCain. And John and I were the most unlikely pair, a West Pointer and Annapolis graduate. Uh, but somehow we find a way to get along. I give great credit to John. He reached out and he said, I want you to be, uh, you know, big part of our efforts because he understood the bipartisanship and also with his incredible record, his heroism, he understood what, you know, soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen are going through every day and he wanted to help them. And he was able to do that. Uh, and he was uh, uh, quite a, uh, again, an inspiration as well as a, a counselor. So I hope yep. I can carry on his tradition. Yeah. You know, I really miss him that he gave a little floor speech for uh, my Senate vote. And, and he said the only time he doubted my intelligence was when I agreed to work for him. <laughs> no, no, no. I, That's well, the you kind were, of guy you would such a good. Yeah. So. Well, I think our relation was based on, we, we had both spent plea beers. Okay. So we knew that yelling at me would have no effect. So <laughs> he would just walk away and then come back 10 minutes later with a great idea to solve the dilemma of the moment. So I think it's, that's, we had that in common. Well, uh, so there's a lot going on right now um, in, in your space. And, and um, just so that people know, uh, we're going to speak uh, in, for about another 15 minutes and then we're going to open up for questions. Great. And if you have a question, you should uh, type it in the chat line and then I'll read the question to, to the senator. But, you know, we had this colonial pipeline uh, issue and it's something that, you know, as a leader, and again, I just want people to know that the people who are really thinking about what our military needs to be doing 10 years from now to face the threats of the 21st century, you want a person who is a professor at West Point who has two Harvard degrees like Jack Reed and, and you know, people with experience like John McCain. And so you were talking about cybersecurity just about from the dawn of the computer age, but we just had this cybersecurity hack. Uh, it's something that we've sort of seen coming. Um, we've not necessarily done a great job of getting prepared for these things. And I think the disruption we just saw is, is illustrative of that. Um, tell us about like what you, what you guys are doing in the cybersecurity front to try to address these challenges. Well, I mean, first, let me give some credit to my colleague, Angus King from Maine. He led the Solarium Commission which provided some excellent guidance to us. And in the last National Defense Authorization Act, led by Chairman Inhofe, we were able to incorporate many provisions. Uh, in fact, uh, one of them is a, a presidential level uh, Senate confirmed coordinator who's uh, coming up, I think this week for confirmation. And one of the things we find is, is just, we're so stovepiped and so, uh, you know, fractured in terms of our response. The Colonial Pipeline is, is, is interesting. Uh, uh, some of the responsibilities with DOT, the Department of Transportation, and then some other responsibilities with the, the TSA for cybersecurity. But then we have other agencies, et cetera. And one of the things we have to do is uh, streamline and coordinate our activities. And also uh, discover a way, which is both constitutionally and uh, in terms of legalities uh, consistent, where our cybercom, our NSA, our foreign uh, outward looking uh, cyber experts can effectively coordinate with our Department of Homeland Security, FBI, et cetera. That's one of the main challenges I think we, we have to get coordinated. 
And I think the other factor too that's come through colonial and other is that uh, this, this notion previously of perimeter defense, okay, we have the firewalls up, et cetera, is probably not good enough today. Today, we have to take up an attitude of sort of uh, zero uh, confidence in anybody on the system. So you have to constantly check them. And that's gonna be a maturation process of, of getting our private industry as well as government engaged. Uh, but cyber is, is every day it's a new threat. Every day it's a new wrinkle. Uh, we're racing against uh, not only nation states, but criminal gangs. And you know it's, a, it's an exhausting process, but that's something we have to be focused on. So, so that's actually interesting. So, so you think it's similar to what you guys had to do when you created the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11 in some sense? It was. It was, yeah, I think it was. And, you know, there were some growing pains, et cetera. But, you know, prior to that, we didn't coordinate as well as we're doing now in terms of uh, airport security, in terms of many other factors. And, you know, it, it, we, we, that was a lesson that we took from, from 9-11 and now we're taking these lessons from Colonial Pipeline, from uh, solar winds and others. Uh, and it's a constantly evolving threat. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, the latest government report for last year says that there were 790,000 complaints about hacks or identity theft or something in the US alone. And so it really is an urgent matter. And, and, and so uh, one of the things though that, that struck me is that if you think about it, like if you're a company and you get hacked, they, you know, you maybe don't want your customers to know because then they don't trust you anymore. And if you're a hacker and you hack someone and get a bounty, you definitely don't want, you, you don't want to brag about it because you want the law enforcement to leave you alone. Mm -hmm. And if you're law enforcement, it could be, especially if you're NSA, you might not be allowed to sort of watch American citizens and protect them. And if you're a law enforcement agency, maybe you want to hide your abilities from the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And so there's always, it takes a big thing for you to inter intervene. And, and so in that space, sort of how much transparency is optimal for policy is a kind of hard question. And you've thought a lot about that. And you have a bill, I think, about that. We do. Uh, you know, we, we've got several pieces of legislation. One uh, area you alluded to is the fact that there's no requirement to report to a appropriate authority a breach and so as a result and you said it very well for reputational reasons you don't want to you know disclose to your customers that you've been breached for and certainly the perpetrator doesn't want to because it's a good living if you can stay under the, the, the searchlights uh, so one issue we're considering and we could move on under the NDAA is a requirement uh, with the cooperation of the other committees a requirement for reporting serious incidents to a centralized location. So it could be dispersed throughout the federal government. So someone else say, wait, we, you know, we've seen that before. This is not just a, a one-off hacker. This is a systematic attack on different systems. That's one aspect. The other aspect we've been trying to, to get uh, is a legislation that would require public companies to have someone on their board or some other mechanism uh, in which they would demonstrate their cybersecurity, that, that they were paying attention to it. It's modeled uh, on the accounting provisions we put in uh, uh, the Sarbanes-Oxley bill years ago, where there has to be someone on the board that has uh, expertise in accounting and oversight. Uh, and I think 
that's something that struck me. I remember I was talking to the commander of Transcom, which whose major job is, is coordinating lots of private airlines and private shipping companies so we can move supplies. And he would say, I talked to the cyber expert in the airline or the shipping company, but he never talks to his board or he never talks to, to the CEO. And you've got to get that dialogue going. Uh, and that's when we hope we can pick that up or the SEC can do it by regulation. Yeah, you know, the, the, uh, just, just to remind, you know, two of the largest hacks, there were 500 million Yahoo users that were hacked, 167 million LinkedIn users that were hacked. And the hacks happened in 2012 and 2014, but weren't made public till 2016. Right. You know, and, and, yeah. and, and, and these are public firms. So, so imagine if it's a private company without, you know, the kind of reporting requirements for public. And, and we also can do it in a way in which uh, the reporting can be uh, uh, confidential initially uh, so mm -hmm. that law enforcement knows. But. In fact, that might be a better way to do it, to, to, to let the perpetrators think that they're getting away with it. But at some point, the notification of the, of the customer is in order. Yeah, and that, that, that was actually when we were at the White House, and then we'll move on. And uh, that was actually something that we found also when we studied this when I was at the White House, that law enforcement does sort of hold it close when they see it happening because they want to catch the guys. Uh, absolutely. And so sometimes they don't even tell the company if they think that there's no reason to. Because yeah, that's that's absolutely true, and you know because they are looking to ensnare the the whole gang, and these are probably you know uh, multi multi layered sort of operations in some places. And one of the things we found looking at the sort of the the, the rapid development in 2016, uh, the election, a lot of disinformation was coming out. Russia, obviously, they were their security services were doing it deliberately, but they were paying in rules for ad space and also using servers in St. Petersburg. So it was a little easier for us to find out. Come 2018 and 2020, all of that has been sort of uh, moved into the country, disguised by cutouts so that it looks like some, you know, some company in Omaha that's just interested in selling its product. Yeah, and, and you know, the one thing that, as I've been studying this, that really jumped out at me was that the company Malwarebytes did it surveyed uh, defense or IT cybersecurity professionals in the US. And half of them said that they had considered at some point doing, you know, quote unquote, black hat activity or, or, and, and, and the, or, or either that or that they knew someone who had. And, and, and so it really is something that it feels like a lot of people feel like they can get away with and, and it's important to do. Better. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's a phenomenon where particularly younger people have much more facility because they grew up with it. It just kind of seems natural. And uh, the other factor in which we are considered constantly is our defense industrial base. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not as well protected as we'd like to see. We're taking steps now through the major contractors to go ahead and reach out to the, the smaller subcontractors uh, to ensure that their cyber uh, hygiene is very good. And that, uh, you know, because typically what happens is that they come in the back door. I remember the target hack of several years ago, it was a small HVAC company uh, servicing one of their stores and they got into that and then they got into the store and you know, the rest is history. 
So we have to be uh, very, very uh, sort of, again, sort of this zero trust factor. Uh, you know, nowadays you can't assume you've got firewalls that'll always stand up, et cetera. You've got to practice zero trust. Well, it's reassuring that you, that in an example of your commitment to this, that you know that much detail about the target hack, that it, like it went through. No, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have to say that it, it's, that's where solutions come from, is understanding the problem. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. You know, listen, I learned that in the Army. Before I did anything, I asked my platoon sergeant or first sergeant, does this make sense? And sometimes when I didn't, I was told, sir, it doesn't make sense. You know, I didn't have probably that. Probably a little harsher than that. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I let everybody know that we're, we're coming. I got a, a few minutes more of, of questions for the center, and then we're going to open it up. And I sort of bespoke, don't use the chat function, use the Q&A function to ask the questions. And then um, the other thing I ask of people as they type in questions is that you constrain your questions to the topics that we're discussing today. Uh, and uh, I'll enforce that by just sort of reading the questions that, that are about the things we're talking about today, because we don't want to go too, too far afield. We don't have a huge amount of time. But so defense authorization, uh, right. you know, you've got a lot of work to do. Uh, the budget's we coming do. a little later this year, uh, which probably puts a little stress on your committee. Uh, you know, what are your priorities? Uh, what's the timeline look like to accomplish this work? Yeah, we're under significant uh, pressure because it, the budget is late and also because the budget will be flat. The last few years at the tail end of the Budget Control Act, it, basically there was a very robust spend, spending uh, support for uh, the uh, DOD budget. This year it'll be relatively flat. That causes the obvious problems of making tougher judgments about what stays in and what goes out. And then it's late, so we're, we're typically we would be ready to go to the floor next month with our bill or at least go to committee. Uh, we'll probably, if we can get to committee next month, that would be real progress and then get to the floor before the August break and then be ready to conference in September. So that's it. And uh, we're also in a, a situation where we're trying to transform the military in many different respects. One is that we, we recognize new technologies like AI, quantum, hypersonics, which our adversaries or our competitors are also uh, trying to develop. We have to get into those fields and be the leader. We don't wanna lose that competition. But unlike some of our adversaries, uh, we have legacy systems and legacy responsibilities we still have to maintain. So that's gonna be one of the big tensions. That's the a transformation. The second transformation we're trying to do, and I think you'll appreciate this when you're in time, is that the Department of Defense is still working under the McNamara PPBE rules of 1960, which was terrific for the industrial age. If you wanted to run an automobile company in 1960, this was the, but we're still there. So we have these difficulties in adapting new technology and getting into the field and getting it out. So we're trying to reform that system. And that's uh, another transformation that is simultaneous with just the, you know, how do we get by the new equipment? How do we move into R&D uh, more aggressively? So those are some of the issues we're facing. We've got uh, COVID still, uh, you know, a factor we have to deal with. Um, and, you know, we're also in a situation where we want to go ahead and uh, make sure that we complement 
the State Department and our other colleagues in the Foreign uh, Service so that it's not a one-dimensional strategy of military force, it's a multi-dimensional. And we're looking at the Pacific now more than any other place. Of course, Europe with the Russians was still very much involved. And that's gonna require uh, new operational techniques. And I think most importantly, it's gonna require the ability to bring our partners closer together operationally. And that goes to communication. It goes to a space, which is a new dimension that we're, we've created a space force. Now we have to integrate it. Uh, but all of these things are, are, are absolutely critical. And I'll just conclude by saying, you know, when I was a, a long time ago, when I was a paratrooper company commander, the slogan was shoot, move, and communicate. Today, I think it's communicate so you can shoot and move. Because if they knock out your, not just your combo, but your, G, your GPS and, and your electronics, uh, you are in a difficult situation. So those are some of the factors. So, so we've got lots of questions pouring in, but before we do, I just like to have a last question, which, which I'll start with a sort of a half-hearted joke almost. Was, was being, going through ranger training uh, harder on you than lifting the debt limit? <laughs> or is lifting uh, the debt limit harder? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was puzzled in both situations by why, why are we arguing about the debt? We've got to do it, don't we? And then uh, yeah, Rangers Co. is an interesting proposition. I, you know, it's yeah, somehow survived. It, it was a little unfair because I'm not a very tall person. So in the jungles of Florida, the Florida panhandle, handle, when the rest of my uh, Ranger colleagues were up to their waist, I was up to my chest in water slogging through there but I just getting through was all I wanted to do I didn't need any uh, special uh, commendations I just wanted to get my tab so, so is, is there something though but just to make a joke that the one reason the debt limit is so crazy is everybody seems to be fighting about everything even things that should be layups uh, and, and is there like, like a final thought for people before you open to their questions about like what could we possibly do or what could we urge our elected officials to do to re return to like the Senator Warner land when people yeah, no, I, together. Well, I, I think there are, there are factors now, you know, social media is, uh, was not a factor uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Uh, and it does, uh, it helps to fragment us, I think, rather than bring us together. You know, when I was a kid, except there were three ch television channels and you had Huntley and Wrinkley and Cronkite and, just the facts and you know they had a certain presence when they said something it resonated because they they had to because of their journalistic uh, upbringing they had to be accurate uh, mm -hmm. and we've lost that now and and some of it is is not just uh, accidental it's deliberate because of disinformation etc so that causes a lot and i think also too is the just the the, the, the polarization that you see uh, that's manifested in the communities uh, is reflected here too. Um, and I think the way you get through it is to first, uh, you know, try to get some things accomplished because I think the best thing that we can present to the American people is, you know, uh, completed activities which benefit them. 
I think there was appreciation that, uh, and this was a bipartisan basis, the CARES Act last March was fully bipartisan and it sustained the country in one of the most difficult moments it had. So that moment we were together, we'd like to keep it that way. Uh, and now we're trying to search out bipartisan ways to do infrastructure and other uh, issues. Uh, I think that'll help in a way. And then there's the sort of the personal relationships of trying to, you know, respect everyone and 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 ask them to be respectful and think about your ideas. And you know, I was I've been the last few days working with some of my colleagues to get a warrant provision into this uh, chips bill. Mm -hmm. uh, we put warrants into the, uh, the TARP bill and made $10 billion for the federal government. We put warrants into the CARES bill for the airline industry, made $1 billion. And Jerry Moran, my Republican colleague from Kansas, has joined me together and Lisa Murkowski. So you just try to build on these small things, if you will, and try to get them to generate larger uh, collaborations. Well, I'm grateful that you do that. And now I'll open up uh, folks for questions. And they're coming in at such a high rate that we probably won't have time to get to them all. But I want everyone to know that they should type them nonetheless. I'm not going to necessarily go in order. And um, I'm going to forward all the questions to the senator's office just so he can see what you guys are thinking about. Uh, sure. But there's a question from, from Steve who says that uh, Secretary Gates once said that the hardest thing for him to do as Secretary of Defense was to eliminate a weapons program. Uh, is there something we can do to make this more straightforward to fix this? Issue? That's absolutely correct, uh, because uh, Congress is often the, the obstacle to retiring weapon systems. Uh, and it's because, frankly, you know, what is a legacy system to a, a general officer in the Pentagon or a Secretary of Defense is the uh, the unit in your district which is critical to your you know your social and economic status etc so it gets hard now one of the thoughts we've had is that we may be in a position that we can think of something like a, a, a base closure act procedure where a force structure would be sent over by the secretary of defense and we would have the we would have to vote on it, but it would be an up or down vote, and it would represent uh, the Defense Department's best views on what they need and what they don't need. Now, I don't think that's going to happen right away. I think we're going to be in the process of the traditional uh, trying to make the best case uh, we can to maintain those systems that are absolutely critical to us and the new technologies that are gonna be critical to us and somehow uh, compensate for the loss of a system, uh, particularly in a, a geographic area by some other uh, element. I think that's, that's a practical way to try to do it. Uh, but the, uh, the, the gentleman is right. Uh, and, and Bob Gates, who's one of our greatest sector of defense was absolutely right. So, so Jennifer asks, uh, and I'll just sort of generalize it a little bit, that, that with a sort of very closely divided Senate, then it could have been that, uh, that the new administration would come in and decide, like last year, to sort of make everything bipartisan. But instead, uh, it looks like there was sort of a lot of party divide stuff going on at the beginning. 
Um, do, you, do, you, do you think, was there anything in retrospect that could have been done to avoid that? Or is that the, the natural thing that happens at the start of a new administration? You know, I, I think that uh, there was attempts, but I think there was also the, just this imperative to get the American Rescue Plan done. And um, that was the f action forcing device. We had to do that. And, we, you know, I don't think the Republicans saw some on principle grounds, some on other grounds saw that as, as important as we did. And then it became a, a 50, uh, 50 plus one vote. Uh, and then uh, now, and the certain nominees have, have been uh, contested and again, either withdrawn by the administration or uh, it's 50, 50 plus one. There are, you know, this bill we're trying to work on now, the, the CHIPS Act, which would make a uh, significant, it's that huge contribution to building uh, micro chip processing plants in the United States is bipartisan. Uh, and uh, both Senator McConnell and Senator Schumer are trying to make it bipartisan. So, you know, there are exceptions to this, but some of the critical issues that just not only in terms of political dynamics, but also um, economic views and other issues, uh, it's hard to get uh, 60 votes, which is the threshold to, for bipartisanship in the Senate. So, so Steve asked if you saw the op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today uh, connecting uh, cybercrime with cryptocurrencies, and if you had an opinion about that. It could be maybe you haven't seen it, and that's a, that's. An I haven't seen it. No, I. But I. I. Uh, I would not be surprised. Uh, I, I think again, and I'm I'm talking to an eminent economist. You you can assuage my fears, but it, you know, uh, fiat money is basically the system that we've operated on, and it gives the United States a huge advantage because, and other nations, because in fact you control to a significant degree the, the money supply. And when you get into cryptocurrency, I don't know who's in charge. Uh, so that's some a concern I have going forward. But uh, I, I think the linkage between these uh, factors could could, uh, could be compelling. I haven't seen any data, right? It, it's worthy of study. And, and one, one thing is that a lot of countries don't necessarily have central banks that you can trust either. No. And so it's kind of a metric of bad monetary policy, potentially, that, you know, that, that there are well, a lot of people it, around it, the world that need to find this alternative mechanism. It's interesting because the Chinese, I believe, are beginning to crack down because they're getting nervous, but also because of the huge amount of energy, which is required to, to, to create the cryptocurrency. So uh, for many factors, I think uh, we have to stop and think and, uh, uh, you know, once again, we're in the, the, the dawning period of this era. So let's, we can stop and think and hopefully get it right. So, so uh, Tom asked, and I'll just paraphrase so that we can go quickly. Uh, do you think that uh, we're moving into sleepwalking into strategic insolvency and that, you know, China is basically cleaning our clock uh, because we've been asleep at the wheel for a little while? Um, or do you think that we've actually been keeping up better than maybe people fear? In, in terms of our competition with China militarily? Yeah, that's right. Militarily? I think we are uh, ahead, but the margin has narrowed, and there are several factors. One is that while we were committed to 20 years of counterinsurgency warfare, 
again, getting back to Bob Gates, when Bob walked in, he said, listen, I want uh, MRAPs to protect my troops. And they were critical, but they're not the type of uh, vehicle you need for a uh, combat with a, a near-peer competitor. So essentially, we've got rid of them all, but it's billions of dollars. They, uh, they didn't have that problem. The, the, the Soviet Army, Navy collapsed and all that equipment was left sort of to, to, to just disappear. So they started almost a clean slate. And China, um, 20 years ago, was focused more on their economy than their military. And in the last you know, two decades, they've really accelerated. Uh, and they have the economic clout to, unlike the Russians, in to complement their military with economic power. So we are still ahead, uh, and I, we will stay ahead. Uh, but it's going to require, again, there's these tough trade-offs between investment and research and development, uh, putting out uh, more sophisticated equipment quicker to our forces, uh, and paying for it by... Uh, making tough judgments about what we don't need just as well as what we do need. So, so this next question is something that I know you really care a lot about, but uh, you know, we remember there being a lot of problems in the past with the veterans administration and the treatment yeah. of our, uh, you know, veterans and military members. And, um, you know, one uh, person, I guess, Anais, if I'm mispronouncing your name, I apologize asks uh, just what what have uh, what steps have been taken to support military members or citizens of Rhode Island to improve you know the, their treatment and so on by uh, you know the veterans administration well it's been a, a, a significant focus on uh, and not just this administration but the, but the Trump administration also and funding in order to bring up our VA system to highest standards and I think I have a, a, a a system that's very, very good, but I know there's some that are not up to the standards in Rhode Island, and this is part of the culture of the community. We have one VA hospital. Uh, it serves our veterans. They really are happy with the care. Uh, they have some satellite facilities, uh, but it's just, I think, because of the, the nature of the state, small, compact, everyone knows everybody, I can assure you. Uh, but when you get out to other places, particularly uh, some of the areas in Florida, I've been down to visit uh, VA facilities down there where you have a changing population of veterans. They're coming in, uh, they're, they're leaving, et cetera. And that's more, more difficult to provide the continuity of care. But the resources have been been there. We've been trying to put those resources in and ensure that we, we have good care. So uh, I guess the, the last question that I've got, we've got like a whole bunch and I'm trying to, to pick one. It, it, we'll just go back because it's the title of uh, the Shetan uh, Do you think that the political division, and, and here I think what he's referring to is the fact that like to win, there's so many gerrymandered districts that the, like to win your primary is like the only thing and then you get to win and a lot of right. states probably even they're very safe for Republicans for Senate. And so you have to go far to the left or the right in that state. So do you think that that's really where what's been killing bipartisanship is the, the sort of drift, the divisions that have increased because of, you know. Yeah, no, I, that is a definite factor. When I was elected to the House in 1990, 
there was a significant number of moderates on both sides. There were the blue dog Democrats and there were the moderate liberal Republicans. And uh, because the districts were were less uh, targeted to one party versus the other. And that's got much, much worse now. Uh, and, uh, you know, the districting that will be undertaken uh, based on this census will probably make the problem even more acute. And again, you're right, because if you're just worried about an opponent from the left if you're a Democrat or an opponent from the right, uh, because you have no general election opponent, then you're going to be pulled in that direction. And that, that accelerates the, the, the polarization. The other factor is just the, the deluge of money that's coming in to, to campaigns that are it's dark money. My colleague, Sheldon Whitehouse, is one of the leading uh, experts on this issue. But, uh, you know, races now are, you know, hundreds of million dollars for a Senate race in a, in a big state like Pennsylvania. Uh, and it's not the candidates' money. It's, you know, whose money we don't know. Uh, that, I think, has to be fixed. And then we're seeing this whole uh, movement at states to curtail voting rights, hours that polls are open for mailing, treatment of absentee ballots. And that's frankly, I'll be bluntly designed simply to suppress the vote because, you know, you, you know, last election, you know, we had a significant turnout, the largest, I think, turnout we've ever had or one of the largest. And uh, it was uh, judged by the Trump administration's experts in Homeland Security as the safest and uh, and soundest election that we've ever had in terms of the integrity and the lack of uh, of fraud and you know and to sort of reject that and say no we don't too many people voted I don't think it's the right approach. Well, big turnout is definitely the right thing and and you know back as a final point um, you know people might think of uh, you know Rhode Island as a safe seat for you and it's true if you look at your record, you get about 70% of the vote, it feels like, in the general. But I remind people that uh, Rhode Island has had just about as many Republican governors in my lifetime as Democrat. And, and that if you do have a safe seat, it's because you are what people saw today, that you're a person who's focused on results and working together when you can and doing it in a collegial and respectful fashion. And, and just thank you so much. I'm, I'm told that we've hit our time limit. But thank you so much for joining us today. Kevin, thank you. It was a privilege to be with you as always. And we do have to get lunch as soon as COVID recedes <laughs> and you come back from lovely California. Okay. Thank you so much. And thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Kevin.